Welcome to Striking a Chord, an Ernie Ball podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Joe Bonamassa. Joe Bonamassa began playing guitar when he was four years old and hasn't looked back since. At 12, he was opening for B.B. King, and today he has 22 number one Billboard Blues albums under his belt. We talk about his work ethic and what I would say is an almost superhuman drive and determination that has allowed him to do what he does on the guitar. We talk about his childhood, his world-class guitar collection, and he offers up some album recommendations for people who are interested in getting introduced to the blues. Just a quick note to our listeners, if you're interested in staying in the loop for future episodes, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Bonamassa. Joe Bonamassa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Everybody's got a podcast now. I'm still doing... (laughs) digital terrestrial radio i i I gotta get hip like you guys all right let's do it so rumor has it you started playing guitar when you were four yes four-year-old is pretty small person how does a a four-year-old begin playing guitar well you know i started on an erlewine uh chiquita guitar that were made in texas and they were little travel guitars and um, i think they still make them And I basically, for all intents and purposes, I wanted to be an electric guitar player. I didn't want to be an acoustic guitar player. At four? At four, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the the kind of music that I was gravitating to was electric. So I didn't want to play acoustic playing electric, you know. So my father, well, Santa, bought me an electric guitar for Christmas. And that was it. That's how I started. Okay. Really, Really that simple. But the drive was there when you were that young. Well, you know, one of the things I, I've always been driven and, and I've always been the kind of person that, 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 you know, works too hard, like today. I've been up since 3.45 in the morning. And um, one of the things, you know, it, it's like I always knew what I wanted to do. It was never, it was never a question wh- whether I would, you know, want to be a guitar player or not. It was always, that's, that, was, that was my path in life. So Yeah. It seems like sort of a fortuitous recipe having a kid with drive and talent and a, and a father that was super passionate about guitars. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a musical family. My, yeah. uh, my, my dad was a third-generation musician. My grandfather was second-generation. My great-grandfather was a first, and I'm the fourth. And, you know, the, one of the things about it, it was never, a, a, you know, the Bonamassas have made a living in the music business for four generations. And, you know, it was just, kind of preordained as they say yeah so how quickly did you take to it was it instant oh yeah i never i never put it down i haven't matured or i haven't done anything at this point um you know i haven't grown since i've probably been (laughs) like 13 years old you know and you know just just as a as a as a person you know i i really you know i've always been that guy i always wanted to be surrounded by fender amps and gibson guitars well you're in my house now yes you've seen i've accomplish that goal yes so how quickly did your parents realize you had an aptitude for guitar playing uh i think probably by the time i was six or seven okay you know they were hearing stuff coming out of the room that was a little bit more advanced than probably i should have been but again you know i i was i'm a product of hard work not natural born talent i mean i I was just tenacious i am tenacious and i like it and i really enjoy you know i really enjoy playing and i really enjoy the challenge of playing i really enjoy the, the the 
the, everything about it. You don't suspect you have a natural aptitude? I have some natural aptitude. Yeah. I have the aptitude to adapt to any situation. I have the aptitude to basically go into any musical situation and play competently. And and I was taught that by a guy named Danny Gatton who who basically shaped my musical tastes in my formative years. You know, he's like, you got to learn something about jazz. You got to learn something about country music, rock and roll, blues, and be ready to play it at a drop of a hat. You know, so, you know, you, you, there, I know a lot of people are just, you know, I know a lot of people that are just rock guitar players, you know, and but you put them in a blues situation and they, they fold. You know, I, I've been more of a kind of a, I would say, jack of all trades, master of none, but it works for me. So how did you cross paths with Danny Gatton? I met him at a festival. And How old are you? It's eleven. It's online. There's a there's a video of it online. It was of eleven. The meeting? It, well, of me sitting in with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. I kind of just he he related to what I was doing because he was a kid with a banjo and a guitar, and his father would take him around to festivals and he would sit in. So he related to me, and he had a cool Telecaster, and I was like, "This is the coolest day ever." So how much were you practicing then? Oh God, I would as long as I could. Long yeah. as long as the parents would let me on the weekends, and as long as homework was getting done, I would I would I would try to rush through that and play my guitar. I'm still anxious about having to do busy work, you know, because I just want to get to playing my guitar. You know, I'm still anxious about it, and th th those are the things you kind of have when you're growing up. So your dad, I assume, was your your first teacher. Yes, my okay. dad. My dad taught me how to play the guitar. Um, he also taught me about a lot about gear. He also taught me a lot about, you know, playing loud. He was, you know, he was a school of the late sixties and, you know, a kid of the late sixties. And he, and he went to that, you know, play louder is better school, which I subscribe to, to this day. Sure. You know, he had an SG and a big amp and you could rule the world, you know, he, they liked it loud. And, you know, that was the one thing about being in a, a group, you know, or a band or a solo artist back then. It was like, if you wanted to get somebody's attention you played louder like bb was always louder you know he always had a twin his you know and when he played one note he'd be like wow this is like amazing and it would cut and it would stand out and he played with bad intentions and my father taught me that playing with bad intentions was going to get you noticed and that's that's basically my whole okay it's been my mo since for 30 years so did he get to a point where he felt he had taught you what he could yeah. And and then did he Oh, there was always a healthy competition between the two of us. Okay. You know, we would we would we would compete and um you know, he would always say that, you know, I was better than him at 7. It, it kind of not true. I mean, he's he's a very good guitar player. Um but I was competitive and I wanted to be I I I wanted to beat everybody. I was never a place or show kind of guy. You know, I was a, like it's win, yeah. okay. you know, zero sum game. And I'm still like that. You know, I've mellowed out over the last 10, 12 years or more. Um, but one of the most commonly asked questions when people ask, you know, like say, hey, I met you 15 years ago. My first question is, was I nice? You know, and I have to ask that because sometimes I wasn't, you know, I was just tenacious <laughs> and, and competitive. And, you know, I had a long, funny last name and and I wanted to be noticed. I didn't want to I didn't want to just fade into the hedge and and be forgotten. You know, it was, it was, I have a chip on both shoulders about that. When you were younger playing, did you ever have reservations or were you nervous about playing in front of people or did it always just feel normal? I have this thing about, I, 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 I don't, I'm not good in social situations, but you get me a guitar and a big audience, I'm cool. I'm yeah. as calm as can be. I, 
I sit there, I'm calm, I tell jokes. It's not, it's, it's not a thing. Um, one-on-one, I'm more nervous than if I'm just, you know, uh, in front of a big crowd. And at the end of the day, I never, I never really cared. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was, I, I played a certain way and, and I knew I could play and, and I knew a certain pathway to get people to respond. And, and I always play with bad intentions, meaning that if I play with bad intentions, you know, people are going to respond to it. So you're well known as a, as a guitar collector, basically having a, a, a world-class guitar museum, basically. What, what were your early guitars? And were you passionate right off the bat about those yeah, early guitars? Yeah, I have, I have two of them are in iShot. Um, you know, my first Strat was a 73 that was red originally that I had everybody sign. And my first telly was um, a Japanese 85, which is sitting up over there. And, you know, it was just, a, you know, it was a guitar. It was a tool. How old were you when you got those? Oh, I got the 73 when I was, I don't know, nine. Okay. And it was $275. And I think we used our, my communion money for it. Yeah, the, the rest is history. And then I got my first Gibson. And then I got my, you know, my first Gibson was a medallion Firebird that was had a headstock that was broken. It was $200. You know, back then you could buy stuff that was messed with cheap. You know, you didn't have to spend you know, like that medallion Firebird, even with a broken headstock today, would be about thirty five hundred four four thousand dollars. You know, but you know, back then two hundred bucks was obtainable. You know, it was like it wasn't it wasn't like break the bank money. So you, you genuinely love guitars, but do you also think of them as as a store of value, maybe analogous to an art collector? Or? Well, I I have two masters. I serve two masters with the with the guitar collecting. Um, I have guitars that never see the light of day. I have guitars that I rarely play. I have guitars I probably played once or twice and stuck in the vault they're mint they're well preserved um they're they're historical they're extremely rare and at the end of the day you know the 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 instagram naysayers gonna say well well why don't you let other people play i'm like okay well there's that or you could preserve history you know is what i'm doing so the bulk of my 400 guitars is preserving history i play about 45 of the 400 in rotation. Mm-hmm. Strats, Tellys, Les Pauls, Ernie Ball guitars. There's Sunburst Les Pauls, Gold Tops, you know, 335s. But like the preserved ones, the blonde 335s or the really mint Sunburst Les Pauls or the really mint Flying V, you know, and all the stuff that, that is in my collection. Why, why in the world would I take it out and beat it up on the road right. when I have other stuff I can play? I'm lucky yeah. enough to have that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's you have to serve both masters. Are you a custodian of history, or is your ego so big that you go, I don't care if I wreck this thing that Leo Fender built in 1952 that's been preserved, you know, for 70 years. You know, it. it my ego is not that big. I'll play something else. You know, I'll, I'll I'll preserve the guitars and the amps that are super clean, and then play the ones that are not. I, I assume you have a, a endorsement with Fender and Gibson. I don't have any endorsements. You do, okay, I was going to say, because the guitars you play are ones oh. that must be unearthed and, and bought. Well, you know, I have a, I've had a deal with Gibson for, well, I mean, I have a handshake deal with Gibson for 20 years. You know, I have 11 signature models and we do an Epiphone every year and we, right. you know, I have a deal for the Epiphone. Um, Fender, I work with on a, on a, on a, almost a dealer type of basis where, um, like the Fender, the signature Fender twin, I mean, that was something that, that I, I, we commissioned 
and we sold. We sold 500 twins to date. Um, but we, we sell them through our website. And they're doing a, a replica of my no-caster starting next year. And they're going to do 100 pieces. And, and we're going to sell them exclusively through our website. So, so I have a different deal. I have a different deal with everybody. I don't have an agent. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a promoter. Sure. I don't have a major label. Um, I have my own label. We promote our own shows. Um, we book our own shows. And, you know, so my, my whole thing is my whole thing is diametrically opposed to what everybody else seems to have. You know, yeah, yeah. They, they, they get invited to the, you know, CM, you know, the, 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 the William Morris Christmas party. I don't get invited to any of those things. You know, it's like. We've got an Ernie Ball Christmas party you can come to. Friday, yeah, certainly you know. invite me. That'd yeah. be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to get back to your childhood real quick. Right. You did not have a, a typical childhood. I'm wondering how, how did school and social life work in light of your, your early career? Well, you know, the one thing is I don't have a typical life. It's not, even, it's not even a typical social life or a typical childhood. I don't have a typical life at all. I mean, look around. Does, does this seem normal <laughs> to you? Um, one of the things about my life is I've never wanted to, um, I never wanted to amalgamate into the rest. I never wanted to, to adhere to certain social norms, certain just, normal behavior. I always wanted to be in my own lane, you know? So when I was a kid, I mean, I didn't go to the prom. I didn't, nobody asked me, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have any of that kind of stuff. You know, I was a really, I was, a, I'm a recluse. I'm a social recluse and it's not a thing that I, that I pride myself on, but it's just how I operate. Um, it makes me good at my job. And, you know, the thing is I never looked at my life where you go, I have to be married by a certain age. I have to have kids by a certain age. I have to have this by a certain age. I never, I never acquiesced to those social norms um, because I know that being flexible and having my life set up a certain way basically makes, you know, makes me good at my job. And I've dedicated my whole life to my job. And that's all of it, you yeah. know. And I'm a guitar player. I'm a working guitar player. And I've seen a lot of of my friends or people in the business that, that get tripped up because of real life gets in the way of the drive and they have to make compromises and you can't make compromises. If you have a singular vision, you have to, you have to go for it. Right. And, and it's not, it's not a question of, well, geez, you know, that's pretty sad. It is, it's a, it's a personal happiness is a personal choice. I mean, I'm happy yeah. and, and I'm happy doing this and I'm happy doing it this way. And, it's a unique life, and I can I can tell you this that 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 I've not met anybody who is operating this way. So I I pride myself on the fact that I'm the only crazy person in the world that's about to tempt you know that pulls this thing off. It's worked out. It's worked uh, out okay. Were you able to continue going to school when you were younger? I went to high school terrestrially until I was eleven eleventh grade. Okay. Then I was tutored for the twelfth grade, and I graduated high school. And I graduated high school because my mother said nobody likes a dumb blues boy. And I, I agree with that. And so I have a piece of paper that says I'm not quite as dumb as they think. Um, but I don't, I don't equate intellect with, with degrees. Some of the stu most stupid people I've ever met sure. are, are college graduates. Okay? Arrogant college graduates. And anybody who tells you the smartest person in the room is the dumbest guy. That's the first thing you learn in the music business. The first thing you learn in any business. And I never, I, I never understood 
um, the whole thing about a piece of paper telling you whether you have common sense or not. And I, I operate on a common sense basis. And I try to just be honest with myself and, and, and try to be, be the, a good person and give and rather than receive and all of that, you know, and, and, and I don't worry about what somebody else has. I just, that's, that's one of the worst things you can do about it. You just yeah. you worry about what somebody else has or what you didn't get and you have all these hangups. You got to hang up the hangups, you know, because if you're lucky enough to make a living in the music business or at least a, a monicum of a living in the music business in 2019, you are one of the lucky few yeah. that can do yeah. that. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back and see if Joe Bonamassa was ever tempted by popular trends in music. Have you heard about Ernie Ball's new Slinky sets? Introducing Primo Slinky, Ultra Slinky, Mega Slinky, Burly Slinky, and Mammoth Slinky electric guitar strings. Find your perfect gauge. Maybe it's Primo Slinky with a 9.5 on the high E and a 44 on the low E. Or maybe you're a drop tuner. Check out Mammoth Slinky, the 12 to 62 set. Ernie Ball's got slinkies for everybody. Learn more by visiting ernieball.com or your favorite guitar retailer. Get yours today. You kind of already answered this, but blues isn't the typical genre that most young guitar players would would get into. No. Were, were you ever pulled in by popular music we're we're about the same age like when when you're a teenager does nirvana come out and you're like oh i want to be a grunge rocker no you're totally immune to if that it was stuff. popular on the radio i didn't want to deal okay with i didn't i didn't want to deal with music that was popular on the radio I didn't, I didn't want to be told what to like yeah you know i was never a follow the bandwagon guy i never am never will be um you know now the there's a, a amount of content that is ex, ex, to the extreme I mean, there's an extreme amount of content that, you know, it's like I was at a studio today doing a session and they had all these, they had their wall of fame up and platinum albums and this. And, and you go, I had never heard any of these kids, you know, you're like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, who are these people? You know, who is, and, and you're like, well, you know, and I started looking them up on my phone and like these people have like 50 million Instagram followers. Right. They, they can they, they declare themselves king or queen of any country of their choice. But, you know, once again, I didn't get into this thing to be famous. I, I got into this thing because I wanted to play my guitar and buy more. And I've accomplished that, you know. But with with certain amount of success becomes you have, you know, you are somewhat well known. And it, it is, it is that part of my life is very difficult because I, I don't, I don't, I don't seek it out. I don't, ex, I don't seek adulation or, or, or people taking my picture or, you know, being noticed at a restaurant. I don't, I don't care. Yeah, and that's why the guy in the suit exists. It's a, that's a character, and the guy in the suit is the character that that I play on stage and that I put away at ten ten. Comes out at eight o'clock and put away at ten ten, and then the rest of it is just just geeking out and being a nerd, yeah. which is great. When did you start playing live? Did, my first, I my first I was smoking t- Joe Bonamassa. My first playing gig was thirty years ago, in November, and okay. uh, November eighth, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, first playing gig. And was it pretty continuous from that point? It it was pretty continuous from about 89 to about 96. And then there was about a three-year gap where I didn't really play much because um, I was working on a record and working on my singing voice. But we were still gigging but not touring. And then around 99, 2000, I started touring again. Okay. And I haven't looked back. So Did that Jane Pauly segment launch you? It did. I mean, it, it um, the Jane Pauly segment... Um, I've been with the same manager for 28 years, and that's how I met my manager. 
28 years ago. Right. And ask somebody in the music business, have they been, how long have they been with the manager? Like, well, how many months? You know, it's, it's a question of, it's, it's, Roy and I have been together 28 years. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a very, you know, unique relationship that we have because of, of how we operate. You know, and, and yeah. our business model is very different. Our way of operating is very different. The, the fact that we've been together so long is very different than anybody else, you know. So it, it is it is interesting. Yeah, you've how, been able to control much of your career as far as you guys, you created your own label, yeah. promotion company. What what do you think, what kind of team does one need today? Or, or what, what what are the key ingredients one would need today to make it in the industry? The willingness to, well, to, for if you, to, to run my model, um, is the willingness to bet on yourself, the willingness to take chances, and the willingness to to not feel the need to be Sir Edmund Hillary. You don't have to plant the the flag on the top of the mountain. You don't have to be king or queen. Yeah. You know, um, but you can make a decent living in the music business um, and cultivate a, a very nice loyal fan base if you just play honest music for, for people that want to hear it and go out and find those fans. You know, if you're playing, you know, Latvian polkas, okay, there's, there's a certain tranche of folks that like Latvian polkas. You just got to go out and find them, you know, it, it does, if you're playing blues. There's a certain amount of people that like to play blues, you know, like to hear blues. Yeah. You know, the music business teaches you that it, everything is impossible. Promoters tell you that, that promoting a show is impossible. It's like a like Einstein splitting the atom. It's like figuring out, right. you, know, <laughs> e, you know, equals MC squared, you know, and, and rounding it off to a perfect, you know, hundredth. And that's not true. You have to be responsible for your business. You, you as a musician have a fiduciary responsibility to yourself because a lot of people say, well, I, I made, I had, you know, I had some success in the music business, but I got screwed on the money. Okay, well, how many times have you heard that story? Well, if you don't know how you made the money, where it went, where it was coming from, and how, and how it left you, you didn't educate yourself properly about what was going on. Yeah. And it's really critical that you do that because if you don't, you end up becoming bitter and blaming everybody else. You know, what's that old blues song? Nobody's fault but mine. Was there a period you could point to that was your biggest guitar playing growth spurt? For example, so I, I saw, I think the video you were referring to earlier with Danny Gadden, I think that's the one I saw you on stage when you're 11 or 12. He had a white hat. Yeah. Okay. And you'd already, I mean, at that age, you'd, you'd had a huge growth spurt, obviously, from zero well, to wherever you yes. were there. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, I think that my best playing has been in the last seven to ten years i think i had a real metamorphosis or morphosis depending if i had one or more um when i was about 31 32 years old i it was i figured it out you know it was the combination of of being able to put together melody technical skill um and the 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 ability to reach a crowd you know, yeah. and feeling comfortable with oneself in a in a bigger stage environment. You know, because the first time you get up to, you know, play a bigger stage than you're used to, you're like, oh my god, this is like like playing Disneyland or something. You know, you have to know how to harness that. You know, have to know how, you know make make those big stages feel small, make it feel as intimate as a club, and that's playing to the back of the room. That's also using more broad strokes and 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 techniques of stagecraft that that I didn't need when I was playing clubs because I, yeah. the stages were the size of this couch. 
another documentary I saw online uh, was, I think, I think the Bloodline documentary. I think you were about 16. Like yeah. You could tell your progression. You were much more polished from the previous video I saw. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed like your, your chops were pretty well intact at I that was, point. Well, I was, I, was a, I was a bastard back then. I was a little kid with an ego, and, 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 and I was just, I was dreadful. And, and, you know, and I was driven and dreadful. It was horrible. At the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to admit it. You know, I, I've, I've gone through parts of my life where- what, what way were you dreadful? To other people or-, or? I, No, I wasn't dreadful. I've never been dreadful to other people that didn't deserve it. Um, I was just, a, I was a little narcissist. And I was, I was running around. I knew I could play. And I, and I, and I, I was, a, you know, I was a kid, you know? So I was going to take what I wasn't given. I was going to, you know, burn the village down if I, if I had to. And I took that into my early 20s. I took that into probably, I was 25 or 26 before I kind of dropped that, you know. But again, you know, being a kid with a long last name and being a kid with, you know, it always felt like, you know, I was in the, I was in the throes of being left behind. And I didn't want that, you know. And, and, I, and I wasn't happy to just stand around and wait for somebody to come pluck me out of obscurity. I was going to ring the bell until somebody noticed. So how did Bloodline come about? This was a band you were in, what, 16? Yeah, my manager, Roy, um, went to some labels after we, we got together and found out that, you know, a fat kid who's 13 years old and doesn't <laughs> sing is a hard sell. Um, who would have thought? So we decided to put this band together around me and, and, and we found all these sons of fame. So Roy's the one who started Bloodline, basically. Well, it was the impetus was... was Roy's company, Roy being your your manager, manager yeah. yeah, and his father, and we found all these 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 cats that happened to be sons of famous musicians, and we ended up, in spite of our best efforts, getting a record deal with EMI Records, and through a woman named Nancy Brennan, and we got signed, and we, next thing you know, we're in the studio with the now late great Joe Hardy and Ardent in Memphis, Tennessee, and we're making a record. You know, it was very strange for me because. There's a big generation gap between a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, and a 22-year-old. I mean, it's it's huge. Okay, it those guys were about 22? Yeah, 22, okay. 23, 24. Um, so there's a huge difference in age and experience and what you're into. Um, you know, it's just different, you know. Those guys wanted to be rock stars. They wanted to um, chase girls, not work so hard, smoke their weed, and be rock stars, which is great. That's what everybody, every, every 20, I don't blame them. I I I was a little bastard who wanted to work and and you know play my guitar and accomplish something you know and what I learned with that band is what not to do you know and what I learned with that band is I needed to be a singer because I didn't want to be in a band with a singer that had a had a had a, a fear of success ever again and I was I I was able to identify those triggers and I was able to identify the triggers in other people as I went on. And luckily the mistakes that I made personally in that, in that era weren't fatal, you know, cause I think if it was, I was 25 and acted like that or, or had a, you know, that less of a clue, it would have been much more fatal to my career. I would have been written off as opposed to as soon as I turned 20 years old, I was kind of given a new, new lease on life. So did you guys put out an album or, or we did one leave? album for EMI and we toured and uh, and we did OK, you know, but we didn't do great. Yeah. You know, and then we tried to make a second record and they kicked me out. 
and they thought they were good. they they wanted to go on without me as a as a as a group and kind of changed direction and at that point the label had had enough and our yeah. you know manager had enough and so next thing you know I'm 18 years old and I'm out on my own 19 years old I'm out on my own I don't sing I don't have any songs I don't have any prospects and I live at home I'm a fat kid from Utica New York career over you know I guess so this is the impetus for you to start singing that's the impetus pure spite pure <laughs> spite Okay. You know, I have a I have a place in Nashville and I there was everybody has a rooftop bar and just shows you how petty I am. I took my girlfriend over to this bar and um tried to buy her a drink and and just we're just gonna have a hang and it was right across the alleyway from my place in Nashville, which didn't have any lights on the back deck. And I like to collect signs as you can see, and they were so up their own ass. And they didn't. They were. They were like so dismissive and and too hip for the room. We finally left and went somewhere else. But I said to myself, I go, I'm going to set up my deck, you know, to make it look better than than their bar, <laughs> right? Which is on the rooftop of this hotel, right? That has a bus on it. So I did for pure spite. So I went out and bought some pink flamingos and some palm trees, and I lit up all the signs in the house, and we went over there one time, and we looked over from their place to ours, and it looked better and more inviting <laughs> as a hang than the, than the hang that they were charging to get into. It was pure spite. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the power of spite. No, no, there's, there's a great power in spite, because if you're wired that way, um, you know, I learned to sing pure spite. I'm going to show those guys. You want to kick me out of the band? I'll show you. And I did. And you know what drove it all? Pure spite. And there's, I, I'm happy to admit that I'm a petty, spiteful person. But not everyone can choose to become a singer. Were you always aware that you could, you could carry a tune? I'm not a great singer. I mean, I've learned to become a good one. Um, well, you, if, you have, if you're able to play guitar at a certain level, you can carry pitch. And or identify when pitch is bad. Right. Um, you know, I just worked really hard at it. Yeah. I just knew I had an uphill struggle. You know, it wasn't going to be Paul Rogers. I was going to just open my mouth and say, well, geez, here I am. You know, hear me roar. Ah. It's not, it wasn't going to happen. So it, to me, it was never a question of ever going down as one of the greatest singers of all time. I just needed to be competent enough to carry a tune, you know, and, and, and make records. So this all started so early on for you. You never really needed or really had a chance to, to say, what do I want to do when I grow up? You, you found your passion early on. Do you ever wonder in an alternate universe, if you never came across the guitar, what, what your life might I'd look like? I'd probably be in the FBI. Yeah? Yeah. I, li I like to bust down doors and do the right thing, <laughs> you know? I'd be one of those guys with the hammer, you know, like the, the door buster, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably be in law enforcement or something else like that. But, you know, one of the things about, you know, I always tell People that ask if they're interested or if they're not, maybe I volunteer the information. It's like, you know, I never had a plan B. Plan B was not in my credo. Right. And plan B was something that was scary. Like, like that was break glass in case of emergency. But I didn't have a plan B. So I think when your back is against the wall, I think it forces you to be more creative and more, and more driven. You know, where you're just going, I'm not going to take no for an answer here. You know, yeah. nobody's beating my door. Nobody's asked me to play with them. Nobody's asked me to do anything. You know, or to, you know, I'm just going to build my own sandbox. 
How many albums have you released? I know your first 38. one was 38. Yeah. Okay, so since 22, 2000, I believe. 22 have been number one, which is the all-time record in the blues chart, the Billboard blues chart. Hold, yeah. We hold the all-time record for the most number ones in the blues chart. We're two away from breaking the all-time record in any chart, which is not a testament to my skills, not a testament to anything. It's a testament to the loyalty and the kindness of my fans who, have, who go out there time and time again. That's awesome. Do you have, is there a record for like most albums put out? 38 is pretty impressive. B.B. King's got like 60 records. You'll get them. No, it's um, the most number ones in a single category is George Strait for country as 23. Okay. Um, and we have 22 number one blues albums. But one of the things that, that, that we do is we try to record at least something every year. And, and this coming up, you know, this January, we're going to Abbey Road and we're going we're gonna to play uh, songs in Abbey Road and record them and, and make a record. So that'll be really fun. It'll be a bucket list wow, gig for me. That's cool. Yeah. And how often do you tour? Uh, twice a year, maybe three times a year. We do spring, fall, a little bit in the summer. Is that, that, does that cover the majority of the year? You're, you're yeah, out? I mean, we're out 100 days. We do 100 shows a year. You can't do 100 shows in a row, so you're out 220 days. Do you have any desire to take a break? I do. Yeah. I do. Every day. I just, <laughs> every day I'm just wound up by obligation. You know, it's like when you're a working musician and have a sizable operation, you have to do things. You have to, you can't just disappear and fade into the hedge and, and say, well, I'm not going to deal with it because you have to deal with it. You yeah. know, like so, today I played on Dion's record and how do you say no to Dion? You know, you know, and, 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 you know, he was there at the surf ballroom with the big bopper and Buddy Holly. And, and Richie Valens, Dion. Yeah. So I played on his record today. And, and I'm honored. How do yeah. you say no to that? Right. You know, you can't, you can't, you know, it's like he's a friend of mine and we've known each other for a long time. He came up with this great song. So I played some slide guitar. And it, was, it was fun and it was rewarding. I'm a working musician. What does your normal day look like on the road if you're, you're not at home? Well, it depends if we have a show day or not the night before. If we have a show night before, God forbid we have three in a row, I don't wake up till one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. If I have a day off and we're not too taxed out there, I wake up at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, but all my energy for show days is, is designed to peak at 8 o'clock. It's like at 8 o'clock, that's when you're going to be your best. Um, so sound check sometimes gets a little wonky and it's, you know, I'm not playing and singing is good. Um, it's definitely not as strong. Um, and, but at 8 o'clock, you have, you have the chops, you have the voice and you have everything else. So it's all designed to, for energy conservation. It's all designed for, for making things work in, its, in, 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 in putting the best show on for the fans. You know, My whole life is dedicated to that. Yeah. So when, when do you find time to go out and seek out vintage guitars and amps and signs? Um, well, two o'clock. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I get up at two. Um, my bus driver, Steve, is really good about that. Or we'll, we'll, we'll get a car and we'll go right, you know, drive around town. And we, we're just, we pillage. I mean, we're, we just pillage stuff. And, and I, I just walk in, I see stuff. Normally it's stuff on the wall that's not for sale. And then that's, that's when I have the most fun is when I, the negotiation, you know, negotiation is the most fun. Okay. You know, if it's too easy, it's fish in a barrel. If the guy, if the guy's a little nefarious and curmudgeon, I'm like, that's that's when I like that's when I really have my. That's a blast because it's a story, you yeah. know. So what else is on your bucket list? Uh Apollo Theater, in New York City. Okay, that's it. You know, I don't want to play. I don't want to play Madison Square Garden. It's, it, 
I've played arenas before, and it's okay, and it's a legendary spot. But to me, Apollo Theaters, that's where it's cool, you know. So have you already checked off many things on your on your bucket list? Everything. Yeah. Everything. I have every guitar I've ever wanted. I have every played every venue I've ever wanted to play. Um, I've been very lucky in the last 20 years. Let's talk about strings. What what strings do you play? I've been an Ernie Ball endorser for, oh my God, 15 years. And the Ball family has been very generous, extremely generous to me, not only with the with with their with their you know just their endorsements and but their friendship and I consider them family. I consider all of them family. You two being the grandson of Ernie Ball, and and Sterling especially because like you know he always has my back and on a personal level. He doesn't care if I play guitar or not. Yeah. He doesn't care what strings I play. Kind of cares well. what strings I play. <laughs> But but he has my back on a personal level, and I'll never I'll never forget that. You know, especially at a low time in my life at one point where I stepped in a bunch of shit, and he was the first guy to reach out and say, "Listen, don't worry about it. Just don't, you know, just stick the landing." And you know, I use basically for strings would best be described as the burly slinky set, eleven to fifty twos, and I used to use ten to forty forty eights. Um, on my fenders and then 11 to 52s on the Gibson. Over the years, I've just kind of, I've just kind of crossfaded to 11 to 52s through every, you know, for yeah. everything. I like the, I like the fact that the 11 on the high and low on the bottom, you can hit hard and the chords stay in tune. You can bend hard, but it's not, it's not, it's not like, oh my god, I'm like going to get carpal tunnel here. It's still slinky enough, no pun intended. Um, but it also stays in tune right, and it also sounds fat through the amp. Um, it, it's, just, it's just a go-to string of mine yeah. that I've been using since, oh, God, I've been using 11 to 52s on at least Gibson guitars for 20 years more, um, on Fenders off and on, depending on the situation, you know, same, about 20 years. So you're years. playing the standard nickel-wound slinkies? I, yeah, I like nickel strings. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, it's what I'm used to. Yeah. Right. So you've mentioned how much content there is out there. Would it be possible to recommend three blues albums for somebody who wants to learn and and get introduced in uh, yeah. that genre? I mean, I'll 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 recommend three different ones and three different types of you know. BB right. um, King live at the Regal. If you ever think you can sing well, try to put that on, and then you'll feel bad about your singing. Perfectly arranged blues album, Chicago Blues, BB at his finest. I mean, it's a tie with Blues is King, but I, I like Live at the Regal. Um, Gary Moore still got the blues. It's the archetype of what I do. Um, you know, shred over blues. And I would say if you wanted to figure out where kind of the modern take on blues stuff, Gary Clark, Black Keys, you'd listen to Electric Mud. Okay. You know, it's that kind of sludgy and it was like it was too hip for the room back then. You yeah. know, it, it was like, you know, Marshall Chess going, Hey, let's 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 get psychedelic and fuzzy with the blues and he had a willing, you know, participant in Muddy Waters and an unwilling participant in Holland Wolf. But uh, you know, they tried to make two records and, and Holland Wolf just wouldn't have it and he hated it, but they put it on anyway. Um but if you want to hear kind of where where that modern fuzzy blues thing comes from it's pretty much right there yeah that's you know? great all right joe bonamassa thanks for being on the podcast thank you for having me it's an it's an honor it's an honor as always thank you thanks for listening to striking a chord a podcast presented by ernie ball 
Hopefully everyone's now motivated to practice their guitar just a little more. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to stay in tune with future episodes. What is a blues cruise? It's a boat that floats with All blues right. on it. <laughs> a bunch of blues bands on it, yeah. Yeah. Do they happen often? Twice a year. Twice a year, okay. Well, at least in my world, there's twice a year. Then there's twice a year for somebody else. Are you the one putting those on? We do the Keeping the Blues Alive cruise. Okay. Roger Neighbor does the legendary blues cruise. Okay. Um, and he's done it 30 years. We've done it. We've done ours. It'll be our, it'll be our seventh year. So, um, you know... Uh, Roger's built a great business. Um, him and Taj have built a great business. Um, and we've built a great business in a different way. You know, it's like we don't we don't really adhere to the strict, you know, definition of blues. Like next year we got Buddy Guy and Living Color on the same boat. Really? Yeah. Why not? Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Right? Vernon Reed and Buddy Guy and, you know, Johnny Lang's coming on, Jethro Tull. So we got Jethro Tull and Johnny Lang on the same boat. It's like, cool, right? How fun is that?